The following podcast is brought to you by the Creative Arts Curriculum Team from Curriculum Secondary Learners, Educational Standards Directorate of the New South Wales Department of Education. As we commence this podcast today, let us acknowledge the traditional custodians of all the lands on which this podcast will be played, for they have performed age-old ceremonies of storytelling, music, dance and renewal, and along with all Aboriginal people, hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and the hopes of Aboriginal Australia. Let us also acknowledge this living culture and its unique role in the life of Australia today. Let us acknowledge with honour and respect our Elders past, present and future, especially those Aboriginal people in our presence today who have and still do guide us with their wisdom. the official podcast of the New South Wales Department of Education's Creative Arts Curriculum Team. My name is Alex Manton and I'm a Music One Curriculum Advisor with the Department of Education. Today's topic of discussion is Unlocked, Australian Music of the Last 25 Years, an interview with Australian composers Holly Harrison and Jessica Wells and Artistic Director and Percussionist of Ensemble Offspring Claire Edwards. Hi and welcome Holly, Jess and Claire. Hi. The focus of today's discussion is going to be on two works written for Ensemble Offspring, Bend Boogie Break by Holly Harrison and Diminishing Species by Jessica Wells. So Claire, how did the collaboration with Ensemble Offspring and Jess and Holly come about? Well, both these pieces, Alex, were written for different projects. Holly's piece was slightly earlier and that was a commission which we use private donors to fund, and that's something Ensemble Offspring does a lot. We approach composers to write new pieces to go with other pieces in a program that we're thinking of. And so Ben Boogie Break was created for a program that was called Spectral Tech, so spectral music, funky music kind of combined, unusual sound worlds. And then Jess's music was created for a more recent project called The Surge, which was around... We're sort of looking back to the 90s, but it was also looking to the future and environmental impacts, I guess, of the last 25 years. That sounds so fascinating, Claire. Um, so firstly, Holly, where did you get the idea for the piece Ben Boogie Break and how did you get started on the composition? First of all, the inspiration actually came from Offspring. So to be able to work with instrumentalists like Claire and the Offspring gang, that was my main source. So I knew that I wanted to write something that was about 10 minutes is I think what we discussed, Claire. Yeah. And this was the third in a series of works that, that I've written for them over maybe three years or so. So I think at first we discussed the idea of maybe having it multi-movement, but then after a workshop and I guess as any composer kind of knows, whatever you bring to a workshop initially isn't necessarily what you then go home with to work on. I do remember that first workshop being a little bit hairy and we sorted out some things. And I also remember Claire making a suggestion of, hey, Holly, why don't you have like a slow section in the middle, like something could like pay homage to like spe spectralism in the middle. So 
that was kind of where this idea of a bit more of a bendy sort of sound world came from, at least in my memory. And then in terms of like the bend boogie break of it, that wasn't actually like the title, something that sort of came to me until after I'd written it and I had these three threads and I thought, how do I get these ratios to work? How do I sort of tie them together in a way that I guess acknowledges the sort of the funkiness and the groove that's quite apparent throughout the work, this sort of like honky-tonk keyboard robes distorted sort of sound that's in there as well, as well as this kind of nod to spectralism with, with the bendiness and those quarter tones and things that you sort of get get throughout that, that middle section there. So, yeah, that's basically how, how it came about and how I began thinking about it initially. That's great, Holly. You mentioned spectralism. Could you unpack that a little bit? Gosh, I'm not sure I'm even that familiar with it, which is why that was like my nod to it. But it's sort of, from what I understand, like a French school of thought uh, where it's sort of looking more at the sort of overtones and different, the way that different pitches sort of sound against each other. So you're not necessarily getting what we would describe as traditional or tonal harmony, but there's an element of all those extra sounds that exist within within the spectrum and also like using technological means to to bring out like what what that part of the the spectrum is and then replicating that with acoustic instruments i I was just going to say holly it's sort of like the harmonic spectrum isn't it so the way the way the harmonics of instruments stack and then the what the composers Gerard Grise, Philippe Perel, these French composers started to investigate about forty years ago or so was how they could use that harmonic spectrum as their harmonic basis for their writing rather than the typical sort of one four five. Oh, that's just an example, obviously, from pop, but harmonic progression so they use they they use that sort of as their harmonic basis of their writing thanks claire and holly we might take a moment to have a listen uh, just an excerpt from ben boogie break by holly harrison Holly, how did you develop the musical material in Bend Boogie Break? And do you use a similar process for all of your works? So for me, like what happens initially is there's a fair bit of improv that has to take place, like working from that instinctual sort of intuitive, I don't know, like thought pipeline that occurs. So because I have a background playing trumpet and drums, that they're always my go-to instruments. And specifically for this piece percussional drums was was a very important sort of way to get started with that but that doesn't necessarily happen in a literal sense it's not like oh I'm writing a part for Claire on percussion so I'm going to play drums to work that out it's more abstract in the sense that 
oh, I'm running a part for clarinet and or it could be winds versus strings, for example. So in having two different hands and also two feet as well, how do I find like rhythms that interlock there? So it's more like a blocking effect that I'm thinking about like texturally to begin with how those rhythms sort of, I guess, interlock or even like hock it together as is the case in, 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 in a couple of these sections. So yeah, I basically start off by making a whole bunch of recordings and, you know, listen back to them, work out, oh, that one's no good. Ooh, maybe that one had like a little bit of something and sort of start to like splice it together from that point of view. That's absolutely the way that, that, I, that I begin the process before taking that material and notating that into something like Sibelius and then and then having that process of editing that takes place after like the brain dump or like the, the creative dump. That's great, Holly. It sounds um, like a similar process that our HSC students go through to compose their, their core compositions for music too, I guess. Does a lot of what you initially come up with end up in the bottom of the you know, desk drawer, never to be seen again. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I would be very embarrassed if uh, anybody ever heard some of those early <laughs> noodlings or, or, or whatever you want to call them. But, but I think, yeah, I mean, I really think that composing is about being able to select what's better than the thing you just did before. So if you have some kind of ability to think, oh, you know, maybe that has something with it and being able to imagine, like, where could that go, I think... And like as composers, that's one of the most difficult parts that we have. Holly, I understand that Ben Boogie Break draws inspiration from, you mentioned like honky-tonk piano, post-rock riffs and timbres and funk rhythms. How did you use those ideas explicitly in this piece? Are there any other styles that influence your writing for Ben Boogie Break? Oh, well, in terms of the honky-tonkness, I'd describe that as... Because it's a keyboard sound and it's drawing on this road sound, which has or traditionally has like a little bit of distortion in the sound. And because of the tonal language in that keyboard part, there's a lot of semitones and minor seconds that happen in the right hand. And to me, that's sort of like a metaphor for like that honky tonk out of tune piano that you might get in like a salon or sort of something like that. But of course, in this context, it's something that's done super deliberately so when I say that I'm drawing inspiration from honky tonk it's not necessarily oh like this particular song or this particular artist it's more like this idea of I don't know like reaching into my brain about what do I associate with being with being honky tonk and then like using that grab as like a basis for a section like in terms of post-rock I think of bands like with the Scottish band Mogwai as a big influence, but I mean that doesn't necessarily mean that Ben Boogie Break on any level actually sounds like that. It's just it's thinking about. I mean, if you're familiar with post rock, that sort of heavy sort of fuzz sound that you can get these repeated ostinati, and it's mostly like a, a timbre or a textual change that sort of stack up over time and this idea of like a big finish. So in terms of how post-rock has influenced this piece, I would say that it's mostly in sort of like that last quarter of the piece 
where we get to, I think the direction in the score is heavy funk or sort of something like that. For me, that's that's very much sort of pulling in that post-rock feel. And when there's that rhythm at the end, that ba, 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 that's sort of, I know when I was coming up with that, I was like, yeah, it's like you're strumming a guitar there. I don't know if that sounds a bit corny, but that, that was sort of like, I don't know, I, I tend to think about composing as like quite a physical thing, so... Yeah, if I'm, like, listening back to a recording I've made or something like that, yeah, I like to get up and, like, move around or, like, think about, you know, like, I don't know, air, air flute or something like that that might work. And I think, yeah, so that's, that's very much where that sort of post-rock influence comes from. And in terms of funk, I mean, I think that's, that's quite obvious and inherent in the rhythms that exist throughout, particularly in the keyboard and, and the bass clarinet part and in that opening section, they're very much in unison. And I think about the way that that keyboard with a little bit of distortion on it and the bass clarinet sound together to create like that composite sound to me also sort of sounds a bit like a funk bass sound, even though stylistically it doesn't necessarily like match up in an obvious way. It's like using that thought of well, what could funk be as an element to, to drive where I might go next. So it's like more conceptual, more airy-fairy than, than literal, I would, I would say. That's fantastic, Holly. Thank you so much. And I think that those popular music influences make it so accessible for our students. It's such a likeable piece and really engaging to listen to. And it could be an excellent option for study for HSC Music 2 students. So thank you. Jess, your piece, Diminishing Species, offers the audience quite a unique experience and perspective in many different ways. How did you conceive the idea for Diminishing Species and what was the process that you undertook to create the work? The piece was commissioned as part of this particular concert of looking back through the 90s decade of which, you know, I spent at uni and in my 20s, so I'm a little bit older than Holly, <laughs> because that experience of living through the 90s and having played in clubs and bands and things like that. I'm a keyboard player. And so, so drawing from my knowledge of music from the 90s, but the pieces I wrote, I wrote three pieces for this concert, which were interludes. So they're short pieces, about three to four minutes each. And two of the pieces I wrote were more nostalgic, looking at 90s music and incorporating them in for a bit of fun that were, you know, inserted between other larger works in the concert. But this particular piece was my serious piece, The Diminishing Species, because I really wanted to look at how animals had died out through the 90s. So I went and did some research and went into, you know, lots of websites looking at, you know, what animals went extinct during the 90s. And I found a list of them, you know, and, and sort of what what animals were dying out. And they're only tiny, you know, they're little newts, little butterflies, little uh, mice, you know, things like that. They're not big, but they're gone forever. You know, that was quite poignant, you know, in, as a sort of starting point for the piece. This piece is also accompanied by video and that was also very important to me in conceiving how it would look on screen with the music. And the very unusual method of me writing the piece first and then getting the video artist to respond to that afterwards. That's very unusual. Like usually in film, I work a lot in film, uh, we get the film first and we write to the specific timing of the film. But what Claire had, you know, ingeniously thought up for this concert was that the video artists would VJ live, 
you know, during the performance so that the players are free to feel and to play in tempo as they want to on the night. And the, the video artists would, you know, go along with them and, and create the imagery in time with them live. So it's, it's quite a unique type of concept for a concert, really exciting. So I was able to uh, then take my concept of these animals disappearing to the video artists who then put this into the video, which you can see, you know. Now, Holly was talking about writing instinctively, and I do do that a lot, but, but, but this one needed a structure, you know, it needed to actually have a lot of symbolism in the piece. So there are 10 sections, one for each year of the decade. And at the end of each little section, you will see that animal sort of frizzling away on the screen. So it was very repetitive, which you'll hear. Each section almost sounds the same, but there's slight differences to it. And each time I mess around a little bit with it. So it's like deconstructing this setup structure. The pitch material is 10 notes. So 10 decades, 10 notes. So, I mean, we only have 12 notes, you know, so it was, you know, <laughs> it was just more about how those notes formed a scale. And if you look at the score, you'll see lots of white notes and then a couple accidentals, right? So you'll get, you know, this sort of hybrid of a, almost like a major scale and then with some, you know, thrown in some other notes on their accidentals, black notes on the keyboard. And what happens is throughout each section, we lose one note. So we start with a 10-note scale, move to a 9-note scale, 8-note scale, etc. Uh, and there's quite a flurry of rhythms going on. This this is an interesting combination of instruments too, and that's something that when you're writing, you take on board, okay, what are my, what are my instruments? How am I going to combine all these things? We had two guitars. That's quite unusual. And, you know, bass, clarinet, percussion, piano, violin. The poor old violin only got to play <laughs> pretty much a pizzicato at crotchet equals 60 on the same note all the way through the piece, acting as a kind of a metronome ticking away and also a bit of a, a nod to time passing, you know, that we are losing time. It's, it's, but it also keeps everyone together. <laughs> it's got a dual purpose. It's a symbolic purpose and also a need for, to keep everyone together in the ensemble because there's a lot of notes flying around. And the interesting thing was, you know, we talked, Holly talked about throwing things out and knowing when things don't work. As a composer, that's really important when you know it doesn't work and you got to, you know, get rid of it and try something else. It's really important not to get too attached to things. If you know, oh, that's not quite, you know, going to, you got to be, you can't be precious about it. You've got to, you know, edit and edit until you're happy. Some composers in the past edited, edited constantly and revisited old works and redid them in, in later times. So it's not an unusual thing to be editing, but the one thing I worried about with this piece was it was too repetitive and it sounded too much the same all the way through. So, but I mulled over it and I actually played it to one of my students, a university student who was studying with me. And I, you know, said, can you just, you know, listen to this MIDI? It's horrible MIDI, but you know, it's not the real thing yet, but can you just listen to it? And then I didn't say anything. I just said, I want you to just listen to it. And then I'm going to ask you a question at the end. So we did, he listened to the MIDI with no pre preconceived ideas about the piece. And I said, okay, when did you notice that there were notes starting to disappear from the scale? And he went, oh, yeah, not until around close to the end, you know, about number eight in there, which was three notes. So by the time we get down to three notes, it's actually a minor triad. And then you get two notes and then the one note, everybody just repeats one note at the end. And I thought that was really interesting. 
Because yes, I was right in that the piece is repetitive and you don't notice much change except in small moments, you know, when things are at the end of each refrain. But that was symbolic to me of the human condition of that as humans, we don't notice things going missing until it's a bit late. So those animals disappearing, we didn't save them. They're gone. So this was actually important to me as a concept in the piece. And it worked so brilliantly with the video. It just really honed in, you know, it brought it home the message of the piece in with the video. And, and so I knew it would work, even though, you know, if it, maybe if it was played live without video, I might, maybe it would be better to kind of thin it out slightly, but with video, it, it, it worked. It was, had an impact and I was really pleased with, with how that came about. That's so interesting, Jess. We might take a moment to have a listen to an excerpt of your work. Jess, what were some of the musical challenges you faced in composing Diminishing Species for such a unique ensemble and how did you overcome them? Yes, it is a unique ensemble, which was an ensemble that existed in the 90s, hence why Claire wanted to and Andrew Blanche wanted to put this together. Andrew was one of the guitarists who you know, conceived of this idea with Claire. And the two guitars was fascinating to me. I'd never really written much for guitar. I usually hand it over to one of my guitar-y friends and say, can you guitarify this music for me? Because I'm not a guitar player, I'm a piano player, so can you help me make it work? But in this concept, I just wanted the two guitars and the marimba played by Claire. And I know Claire can play a lot of fast notes, so it was, you know, fine. I knew that could be handled. But the guitars, could they also join and make this little trio of flurry of notes, which sort of to me represented all the animals on the planet. That's what I was thinking of, you know, they're all scurrying around and doing their thing. And it worked really well because I sort of layered the three instruments together with, with like a, a kind of a canon type of idea where one starts and the next one starts and they're playing all these notes and scales across each other. And it worked really well. I thought with the marimba paired with the two guitars was a nice little unit the piano then, and, and look, you know, honestly, this piece is so symbolic. It's kind of unusual, you know, for me, but they symbolize things. So the, the violin is plucking this, met, this metronomic pits on one note through the whole thing. So they've got their role. And then the piano only comes in kind of a little bit with the bass. The bass sort of drops a few pizzicatos here and there, you know, in this texture. And then we get to a refrain at the end where they all kind of slow down and pause on a big note at the end of each little section. And this happens every time. The piano sort of plonks down these chords going up and up and up and up the keyboard and then a big rolled chord to kind of bring everyone together in the sound. So I sort of wanted to bring everyone together at the end of each little section and then start again with the, with the guitars and the marimba you're know, driving this texture so everybody kind of had their their bit of a, a, a role. Uh, the bass clarinet also does a little bit of improvising with some aleatoric effects and 
blowing um, breath sounds up and down and squeaking and, you know, doing some things that Jason Noble just does brilliantly and I don't even have to write it out for him. I just go, just can you do your thing and, and, and improvising in there to add to this texture towards the end of each section. So it's sort of like, yeah, it just kept going. And then I literally copied and pasted the first section onto the second section and then messed around with it. I'd pull out, okay, I'm going to pull out a G now. So all the Gs I just deleted. And then I looked at that and went, hmm, is that going to work rhythmically? Is it going to be too weird? You know, can I change a few rhythms to make it more playable? Uh, And then I would mess around with the dynamics. That's an important one. Sometimes we had loud crashes at the end of the section being really aggressive. And then sometimes we had a very soft floaty chord at the end of each section. I just kind of wanted to get a shape in the piece through that dynamics where it got more aggressive through the middle of the piece and then started to get softer and more gentle and fading away towards the end of the piece. So that the, the piece is repetitive in its notes and ideas, but it has a dynamic shape through it. And by the time where we end, we have a very soft, quiet one note, everyone playing one note, and it's, it's very effective and dramatic. Lastly, Jess, how would you like performers to approach and prepare your piece for performance? Rehearsal. <laughs> I mean, that would be honestly, yeah. It, it's I work with orchestras a lot, and sometimes if there's not enough rehearsal scheduled, you're on, you're flying by the seat of your pants, really. And also the input from the ensemble. The lucky thing about working with ensemble offspring is that you know you can go in there rehearsal, like Holly said, and try stuff out and go, "What do you think of this?" or "What do you think of that?" And they'll say, "Hey, what if I did that?" <laughs> and you go, "Yeah, I'll have that. I'll take that." as an option and having that input makes everyone own it together. And I think that that makes a better piece that makes a better performance. You know, there's, it's not in the old days, you know, if a composer just sort of stood there with their arms crossed and, and, you know, expected everyone to play perfectly. It's, it's a, it's a group effort and everyone's, everyone's invested in it. That's the kind of thing you want to get out of this. You know, that's what makes being a composer fun is working with performers, you know, because it's a group effort and they all contribute. Claire, do you have anything to add in terms of how how did Offspring uh, prepare to perform Jess's piece? Well, I mean, as Jess and Holly have both alluded to, I guess our process with composers is very collaborative. It's very much a two-way street. And when I work, for example, in my role as a mentor at the conservatorium in a, in a class called Composer Performer Workshop, I always say to the performers, you're not just pawns of the composers. You don't just have to do everything that they, they say. It's much more interesting if, if you feed back to them. And likewise, the composers have to really respect the performer's views and and experience on their instrument. And so I think it's really important in those relationships that the ego is put aside, but there is also a lot of respect, of course, two ways. And I think that's where Ensemble Offspring hopefully or maybe differs from some other maybe more classically trained chamber groups or orchestras because we're very open-minded. We have a lot of experience of working with a whole range of different composers. And as Jess said, we have experience with improvising as well. So if you put all of those things together, you kind of come up with hopefully a product from the performer's perspective that can really is really open to anything. And that's 
I think, are quite a perfect scenario for a composer. Some wonderful advice there, Jess and Claire. Thank you so much. Uh, Lastly, I do have some questions for all three of you, which may assist our wonderful music teachers in supporting their students in the classroom when navigating new Australian music. What advice can you give to our elective music students who lack confidence when composing their own music and or performing art music? I might throw to Holly first. Well, I mean, I sort of feel like I was once that person that... You know, like even throughout the end of high school, like I didn't, I was only just discovering then that, oh, I might be able to compose. I mean, I ended up doing the IB, not the HSC. So we had to do the three compositions. So it was, it was then that I was like, hey, actually, I really enjoy this sort of thing. So I think from a teacher's perspective, having seen, you know, a lot of people sort of go through and and complete HSC, I think that from a teacher's perspective, it's really important to be supportive, obviously, but I think it's a matter of how do you offer that support? And I think the number one way that we can do that is to have performer workshops. So there's absolutely no substitute for having real life performers in the room to actually test out your compositional ideas. I think like all too often we see students with a laptop and, you know, like that's what they think composing is or that's that's what you think. Like you're just like randomly putting some notes in. I've had students ask me if I've heard of the point and click method, which apparently is just using the cursor and dragging things around and some failures. So, I mean, like we have to think of it that it's not this randomised process. It is something that needs to be done like a real world instrument to begin with and then, Yes, software is a really important tool, but it can come in like a little bit later in the process. It doesn't have to be something that's there from the beginning is what I would say. And I think that boosts the student's confidence because then if you're at your instrument and you feel comfortable and you think, hey, I know that sounds pretty good, rather than starting with, oh, I have these four instruments, I need to come up with something immediately that sounds good, And I find that a lot of students are like, often you're your harshest critic and you're so judgmental of, I have students come to me and they've written three bars and then they say, oh, but it's hopeless, you know. I mean, A, that might be true, but how long did you spend on those bars? You know, like what, three minutes and you're expecting it to be amazing already? I think it's about like from both a teacher's and student's perspective, like being able to adjust expectations like, you know, you have to have the, the right sort of environment to be able to compose in a comfortable way in order to produce, produce something that you feel that you believe in or that you're confident with, I would say. Absolutely, Holly. That's great advice. Jess, do you have anything to add? Yes, I think uh, bringing in the idea of, you know, if you, most of the students doing compositional play an instrument, you know, this is the, and you, you understand about having to practice your instrument in order to get somewhere. Well, the same is with composition. You need to learn craft. And uh, there are so many different things you can throw at the composition to try and uh, create something. And uh, I've gone in and um, done a little bit of, you know, assessing of student HSC works and just to give them a bit of a, you know, a, a sort of outsider's perspective on their work and then how to improve it. And you see things, you see a bit of random stuff, which obviously you know, they haven't worked on enough and you need to say, okay, this is a germ of an idea. How do I take that little germ of an idea and expand on it? 
So there's things like canon, there's things like inversion or retrograde or all these you know, techniques that you can take with these notes. You can stack them and make a harmony and transpose them modulation, you know, there's all these different, and just try these things out on that little germ of an idea. Dynamics, a storyline is something that often helps some students to, they often tell me this very elaborate, oh, this is a person and then they've got this happen to them, you know, or some kind of storyline can also help you kind of envisage why your piece is doing certain things. And I think for, you know, getting a good result from your composition, from what people are looking for when is variety of things. Not overdoing it, not putting too many ideas and cramming them in, but it's more about techniques and variety of, of, of what you're doing. And yeah, good notation, you know, really look at your notation, make sure it's nicely formatted. Don't have one bar per page. You know, no one can do, you know, it's got to be readable by a And that's why with Holly says, getting someone to play it, they're going to point those things out to you straight away. If you, you know, just whacked it in Sibelius on, on whatever it's or Finale or Dorico now, I'm working on all three these days. You know, if it's on the, the just the default setting of the software, it's not going to look good. You know, you've got to put a bit of effort in and, and get onto YouTube where you can learn everything on YouTube now about formatting and, you know, how your music should look. Look at other sheet music. Look, see how it looks. Look at your instrumental parts. See how it looks. Phrasing, articulations, dynamics, all those little elements, those details. And then you'll have yourself a lovely little piece. Thanks, Jess. And Claire, what advice can you give to our students when performing art music? Well, I just want to say something quickly about the compositional aspect that Jess and Holly both touched on. Just in relation to Sibelius or or any software that you're notating your music on, what we find, and this has been the case for years, but somehow if if students especially don't get to work with real-life instrumentalists very often, it can sort of, they, they can forget that the software can play a lot faster than human beings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's quite frustrating actually if you're working, especially with a, maybe a younger composer, and then they play you the the MIDI and you're kind of like, yeah, but we're humans and, and it, it's never going to sound like that. And I think it's really important to maybe to get used to sort of putting the metronome marking back a little bit in, in Sibelius to be more realistic for what a human being can play on their instrument. But more so don't get really set on that sound world that you hear in your MIDI playback because inevitably it's it's – all it really is helpful for, I think, is giving you an indication of of sort of what your piece might sound like, but it's not generally speaking what it really is going to sound like when it's played by real people. So I guess just remember that we're not robots at the end of the day. But in terms of performing art music, goodness me, I mean, where do I start? It totally depends what you're performing. But for me, who has, you know, 25 plus years of experience of doing it, I would say practice is the key. So just like with composers, they need to spend time and they need to, I mean, the other thing to remember as well as a composer is that everything you write isn't going to be amazing and that's fine. You know, like you don't have to be striving for a masterpiece every time. And I think our society actually has this expectation of masterpieces, especially maybe when you're doing your HSC, you want that piece to be a masterpiece. But there's no way it's going to be 
even close to a masterpiece if you haven't written lots of music before that point in time. And I think that's the key. It's just repetition. It's trying. It's failing. And as a performer, we fail too all the time, you know, and I think practice and and uh, consistency really is is the key. And then you can eventually, by the time you're my age and experience, you know, you can play most things that you practice to play over that period of time. And that's a great point to get to, I guess, because because you can worry so much more about just the music and not about playing your instrument. And for me, being a percussionist is not about being a percussionist. It's about being a musician. And I'm interested in making my instrument sound more like every other instrument than a percussion instrument. And that for me is why I love playing chamber music because I get to make these really interesting sound worlds in combination with other instruments, which let's be honest, are much more adept at doing that than my instrument. My instrument's a bit of a dumb instrument sometimes and it's very one-dimensional. And so I love playing with, say, violin which is a, and piano, like awesome instruments with so much depth to what they can do, depth to all their tone colour variations. And I love really trying as hard as I can to, to bring as much variation into what I do as possible. And that's, for me, the really exciting thing about chamber music and new music. Fantastic. Uh, Claire, thank you for such an invaluable insight um, into performing art music. Lastly, we'll keep this one brief. Who are some of your favourite up-and-coming composers, Australian composers? Holly. Anne Cause from Adelaide, absolutely, somebody to be listening to, and also Harry Stralich from from Sydney. Great. Jess. I would say Felicity Wilcox, who's a film, like a hybrid composer of film, and she also had a piece in the Surge concert, which you can watch on YouTube, which is great. You could look at Mary Finsterer, you know, an amazing uh, composer who's done film and, you know, crossover, and Caitlin Yeo, also another film-slash-crossover classical composer. And Claire. Well, I can, I've always got way too many composers going through my brain, as you can imagine. And so what comes out of my mouth is what I've most, I've been thinking about today, which is Alex Turley, who's a Melbourne composer, who is a young emerging composer who's just had a great opportunity with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. And also Ella Masons, who's a Sydney composer who I've worked with a lot. And I think, yeah, they're very exciting up and coming young composers. Thank you so much, Holly, Jess and Claire, for your time today. You've provided such incredible information and and a unique uh, perspective of Australian music of the last 25 years through the composer and performer lens. Thanks very much. Holly Harrison's Bend Boogie Break and Jessica Wells's Diminishing Species are soon to be available as a Music 2 HSC resource on the New South Wales Department of Education website. Please see the link in the show notes for details. The music copyright permissions for this podcast have been granted by Ensemble Offspring, Holly Harrison and Jessica Wells. This podcast was brought to you by the Creative Arts Curriculum Team of Curriculum Secondary Learners, Educational Standards Directorate of the New South Wales Department of Education. Get involved in the conversation by joining our statewide staff room through the link in the show notes or email our Creative Arts Curriculum Advisor, Catherine Horvat, at creativearts7-12 at det.nsw.edu.au.
The music for this podcast was composed by Jack Ryan from Molong Central School.